Hello, my name is Kyle, and this is Killer Cosmos. Today, we're going to assess the birth chart of Ted Bundy, arguably the most infamous serial killer in American history. Now, my approach to astrology incorporates primarily Hellenistic techniques. However, my interpretation will tend to lean a bit more modern, that is to say, relatively less deterministic or black and white in nature. Do not believe that a birth chart can guarantee anything as specific as someone being a serial murderer. There are many ways that the symbolism in a, any given birth chart can play out, so if you recognize any similarities between your own or anyone you know's birth chart, chill out, uh, don't jump to any conclusions, or start calling your local police tip hotline. Uh, that being said, Bundy's chart is certainly one of the more literal and easy to identify where propensity for violence might come from. But before we dig into the chart, we'll go over a brief summary of Bundy's life and character. Oh, Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th, 1946, to Eleanor Louise Cowell at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers. His mother had originally planned to give him up for adoption, but at the insistence of her father... Ted spent the first few years of his life in the care of his maternal grandparents. To protect him and Louise from the shame and stigma of being born out of wedlock, Ted was raised to believe that his mother was his sister and that his grandparents were his mother and father. In fact, Ted may not have discovered the truth until as late as 1969. The identity of Bundy's biological father remains unknown. However, several theories exist, one of which being Ted's maternal grandfather, Samuel Cowell. Uh, whether Cowell was Ted's biological father or not, it appears that Louise moved to Tacoma, Washington with Ted in 1950, largely to escape the influence of her abusive and generally toxic father. In 1951, she met and married Johnny Culpepper Bundy, who adopted Ted. Ted spent the rest of his childhood and adolescence growing up in Tacoma with his mother and adoptive father and four step-siblings. While Ted's environment in Tacoma seems to be one in which he was generally well-loved and supported, he exhibited strange behavior from an early age. One story describes Ted as a toddler laying knives around one of his aunts as she slept. Uh, he struggled with a speech impediment, frequently stuttering, and in later life, he was known to slip into a kind of English accent at times. He never really had any close friends, and he was described as generally aloof or not entirely there. Uh, as a child, he enjoyed building tiger traps in the woods. At one point, a young girl fell into one of his traps and sliced her leg on one of the spikes. Uh, Bundy reportedly liked to trick people, convince people of made-up accomplishments, and he would entertain fantasies of himself as kind of being someone special and, and extra important. In high school, despite being generally regarded as well-liked by his fellow students, it's you know, kind of fairly popular, he had no close friends uh, or was really involved in any dating. He was arrested twice before turning 18 on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. And according to at least one account by Bundy himself, he had developed a pretty avid interest in pornography and violent images that he would find in true crime magazines. And he also enjoyed sneaking around his 
neighborhood and peeking in uh, to the windows of, of young ladies. After graduating high school, Bundy seems to have had a pretty hard time finding direction. He eventually ended up attending the University of Washington to study Chinese. It would be at um, University of Washington where Bundy would enter his first serious romantic relationship. Um, she's generally referred to by the alias Stephanie Brooks. She eventually ended the relationship with Ted not long after he dropped out of University of Washington in uh, 1968, citing his lack of ambition and prospects. The breakup seems to have been a pivotal turning point in Bundy's evolution. It does appear that Bundy was pretty but hurt by the breakup. He uh, ended up traveling across the country, visiting family along the way, and making his way back to his hometown of Burlington, where it is believed that he discovered his uh, his birth certificate and the kind of truth behind his, his parentage. Ted did eventually recover, and he re-enrolled in the University of Washington to study psychology. He became increasingly active in the Washington Republican Party and started dating Elizabeth Klopper, a single mother and divorcee who worked as a secretary at the University of Washington's medical school. He also spent some time working at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. People who knew Bundy at this time described him as, you know, charismatic, kind, uh, empathetic, generally a friendly and helpful guy. He developed a reputation within the Republican Party for his intelligence and aggressive approach. One of his jobs during Governor Daniel Evans' re-election campaigns was to shadow Evans' opponent while posed as a supporter to collect information. Bundy would end up being appointed to Seattle's Crime Prevention Advisory, even taking part in the publication of a rape prevention handout. He would also serve as assistant to Republican Party State Chairman Ross Davis, whom he would become fairly close with. In 1973, after receiving his degree in psychology, Bundy began attending law school in Salt Lake City while still living in Seattle. He also rekindled the relationship with Stephanie Brooks while still maintaining the relationship with Klopfer. Brooks would later suspect that Bundy's carefully manicured image as an ambitious and successful young professional, was in reality part of a more long-term and elaborate plot to get revenge on her for breaking up with him. In uh, January of 1974, after they had been talking about marriage, Bundy abruptly, abruptly, abruptly broke off contact. When she did finally get a hold of him, Bundy pretended like he had no idea what she was talking about, and they never spoke again. Interestingly, this incident would coincide with the beginning of Bundy's first documented murder, or at least uh, his first attempt. Ted Bundy is credited with the murder of at least 30 women uh, across about six states between the years of 1974 and 1978. Bundy would often lure in his victims with his disarming charm and good looks, the hypnotic dance of his unibrow, or ask for assistance while wearing his arm in a sling or a neck brace. Often, he, after he had got, successfully gotten women into his car, he would take them to a secluded location and either bludgeon or strangle them to death. 
often while raping them. He took pleasure in terrorizing his victims, and in one case, he abducted two women in one day so that he could make one watch while he killed the other. Bundy liked to revisit the bodies of his victims, usually in order to engage in necrophilia with their bodies. He was eventually arrested for the first time in 1975 and eventually convicted of attempted kidnapping and assault in 1976. Managed to escape custody twice before finally being convicted of several counts of murder in 1979 and sentenced to death. In 1989, he was executed by electric chair in Florida. All right, so now that we have a sense of Bundy, his character, uh, the kind of shenanigans he got himself up to, actually take a look at the birth chart. So for Bundy, we have a birthday, November 24th, 1946, 10.35 p.m. in Burlington, Vermont. So for those of you just following along with the audio version, uh, we end up with a chart with Leo on the rising, 25 degrees with Saturn and Pluto in the first house. Saturn at 8 degrees, 52 minutes retrograde, and Pluto also retrograde. Um, We have the Sun in Sagittarius in the fifth house, about 2 degrees, 16 minutes, and the Moon at 17 degrees, 42 minutes Sagittarius. Now, because the Sun is solidly below the horizon, we know that this is a night chart. Now, that's going to be extra important in general, but especially as we take a closer look at his first house. Now, the first house is traditionally considered the house most associated with the actual person, the the mind and body of the person in question, that and the, the ruling planet. The other houses are going to tend to show you in other areas of life or other people, but often, you know, the way that you experience those other houses really go a long way towards shaping you ultimately become. So in Bundy's case, we have Saturn in the first house in a night chart. In a night chart, Saturn, you know, it's what uh, is traditionally referred to as the out-of-sect malefic, you know. It's not um, it's not very friendly at night, and it's especially not super friendly when it's in Leo. It is considered to be in its detriment in Leo. So we immediately know that, that there is something wrong, some kind of difficulty with, with the body uh, or the mind of the individual in question. So what kind of problems would those be? Um, well, often with Saturn and Leo, we get you know, narcissism. Not every Saturn and Leo, but it's one of the things that does seem to show up. Saturn is uh, confused in the sign of Leo. Uh, so with this placement, you know, you might see somebody who's maybe confused about who they are or has difficulty differentiating properly the distinction between itself and other people, which is often... You know, the problem with narcissists uh, is they often see other people as extensions of themselves in in some way. You know, Leo doesn't really want to have Saturn in it either, (laughs) you know. Uh, It's, you know, very much the antithesis of what Leo is all about. Leo is about, you know, self-expression and the radiating power and essence of the sun, uh, while Saturn is about boundaries, darkness, you know, the, the end of of things death in a broader sense 
you know, Saturn here is really restricting the the ability to properly Leo. It's also retrograde. In fact, it uh, just stationed retrograde. It was within seven days ago. So we have here a bad Saturn, right? So what is, what is a good Saturn? A good Saturn might look like, uh, you know, Saturn and Aquarius in a day chart. You would be looking at somebody with a very good sense of, you know, their own place in the world and everyone else's. Uh, this would be somebody with, you know, a healthy self-interest, but is really, you know, looking looking uh, kind of out for the greater good. Also with like a very long-term view of things. It can, you know, sit down and do the hard work that's necessary to get done, you know, whether it really feels like it or not, or whether it's going to uh, provide, you know, immediate benefit. Daytime, Saturn and Aquarius would signify somebody who a firm set of principles and is very much, you know, willing to take responsibility and be held accountable. Uh, these are things that, you know, Saturn deals with and, you know, they're not super fun things, but they're very important. So in Bundy's case with the Saturn, we can probably reasonably assume that for the most part, this person is not any of those things, at least not naturally. Those things can be learned over time, but but they're not going to come naturally to somebody with this particular placement. Now, this is, of course, not the whole story. It never is. There's all sorts of uh, mitigating circumstances that you can find in the chart that, that often offset these difficulties. We might want to look at where the sun is. Uh, any planet in Leo that isn't the sun is going to be looking for the sun for some direction, um, how, to, how to operate there. And in Bundy's case, uh, we have the sun in Sagittarius, at two degrees, uh, 16 minutes in the fifth house. Uh, not a bad placement for the sun. You know, it's in a fire sign. Sun likes that. It's also, you know, applying to a trine with Saturn. That's, you know, usually pretty helpful. You know, often with the ruler of the first house in the fifth, you know, the fifth house is, is among other things, you know, the house of like good things happening to, you know, the physical body. Also deals with, you know, sexuality you know, creativity, children, but it usually indicates somebody who is generally pretty healthy, often, you know, relatively attractive with, you know, maybe some kind of sexual appeal. We add some points in that direction. Now, in a night chart, as a kind of general rule of thumb, the sun tends to be less important. You know, it's not uh, <clears throat> above the horizon where it can be seen, which is really what the sun wants to be doing. And the moon tends to take a bit of precedence. Uh, nonetheless, you know, the sun is playing an important role. But what that really is going to indicate is that this sun is is going to, you know, be a little more introverted, a little more withdrawn. It's going to kind of add to uh, a theme that's already kind of in <laughs> Bundy's chart, uh, this um, sense of not being seen, or at least not being seen properly, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. You know, it's going to really tamp down, though, uh, all the significations of the sun in Sagittarius, you know, both for better and for worse. Uh, you know, the sun in Sagittarius, you, you know, you do see a lot of more philosophically minded, often very opinionated, occasionally arrogant um, people. There's some tendencies towards that. But, you know, it's generally a pretty optimistic and fun placement for the sun, usually pretty exciting and excitable. You do get some larger than, than life characters sometimes with it being a Jupiter ruled sign. And, you know, we do know with Ted Bundy that he, he knew who had to turn on the charm when he wanted to. 
In fact, that ability served him pretty well uh, for his purposes. You know, Saturn is is known to feign appearances, misrepresent itself, uh, particularly when it's you know not in great shape. And in Bundy's case, he was very good at at putting on the facade of the sun. Um, you know, he, he he knew how to play the part, and he would you know use that to other people's detriment. It's another thing that often gets associated with you know positive aspects with malefic planets. Good for the person, not always great for other people. But anyway, we also have in Bundy's fifth house here with the sun, uh, we have Mars at 13 degrees 22 minutes, and the Moon at 17 42 minutes as well as the south node at 11 11 degrees, 42 minutes. Now, that's going to tell us a bunch of stuff, but the sun, moon, all hanging out with the south node. That's going to tell us that Bundy was born right around an eclipse. I believe the day before Bundy was born, not a particularly strong one, but, you know, an eclipse nonetheless. And symbolically, again, we get this theme of, of things being hidden. The moon is you know, blocking out the sun and it's with Mars. So that Mars is kind of being eclipsed right along with it. So really all of that is, is hidden in a sense under the surface, obfuscated. And, you know, it's definitely relevant that it's with the, the South node. A lot of things get associated with the nodes and they, in some sense, they're all true, but you know, one thing that, that the nodes do generally that you can kind of count on is that they're going to make planets act weird. They tend to get a little freaky, really closely conjunct a node. Now, the south node tends to make less of things in a, in a material sense, while the north node tends to, to make more, you know, tends to make things bigger and more confusing. You know, I think more typically it's just kind of, you know, whatever's around the south node is just, it's not as big of a deal, uh, or it's just, just not, uh, just don't make as much of, of that topic. Kind of aim for simplicity. There are cases, though, where a lot of different things seem to show up. You know, the South Node's uh, associated with uh, decay, sacrifice, letting things go. And, you know, sometimes you can't help but see that play out very literally. While I think in Bundy's chart, this shows up in lots of other areas. You do get a Mars that is engaging in in, uh, the cutting away (laughs) um, of, of human beings. Another quick thing about the South Node that's just like a personal observation, you probably won't see this in a textbook. When you think of the North Node as kind of the head of the dragon, the South Node, sometimes it's like the dragon's asshole. You know, it's kind of where um, where the, the dragon takes a shit. <laughs> in like some, some extreme cases, you know, you get the planets around the South Node engaging in some filthy, kind of nasty behavior. This being maybe one of those cases. But when something is shitty, maybe maybe you wanna maybe you wanna sacrifice it, you know? Maybe you're not so attached to it when when it just doesn't seem all that great. I also kind of see the the South Node in in this particular case is disrupting or polluting Saturn's reception with the Sun, or maybe giving Saturn the wrong kind of feedback, maybe adding to Saturn's confusion rather than alleviating it. Now, <clears throat> as we move on to these other planets in Sagittarius. It's important to note that their ruling planet, Jupiter, is in Scorpio and traditionally considered to be in aversion. They're not making an aspect to each other. There's not really kind of like an Antitia or anything like facilitating the relationship, which you know tends to be not so great, um, tends to, to make the planets in that sign a little you know, lacking in direction, 
or lacking in proper resources. Interestingly, though, Mars is uh, in Jupiter's sign, and Jupiter is in Mars's sign. Now, it's this form of mutual reception. And a lot of traditional astrologers, given that there isn't really an aspect there, wouldn't consider this a, a real mutual reception. And while I don't tend to see this nearly as strong as a mutual reception where there's an aspect or just a sign-based aspect, they do function. Like there is, you know, usually some support there and you can definitely see, you know, you can see them kind of swapping and trading in a person's life. So it is helpful often. Now, speaking of Mars, you know, now that uh, Mars is also ruling Ted's fourth house, which relates to parentage, you know, the home foundation of the mother or the father. I think generally it's fair to say that the fourth house is going to tell you something about the parents. And it's interesting that the ruler of the fourth is on that south node, eclipsed, hidden. It's under the beams even. And uh, we still don't know who, who Ted Bundy's father is. And he didn't either. Mars is also ruling the ninth house. And in Vedic astrology, the ruler of the ninth house or plants in the ninth house, you know, signify the father in some way, which makes sense. Even in uh, Hellenistic astrology, the ninth house is known as the house of God, the house where the sun finds its joy, the sun also being a significator for the father. You know, you get a lot of indicators here <laughs> um, suggesting that the identity of the father is hidden in some way or they're, they're just not around. Uh, now, Mars and Sagittarius more generally, uh, there's often, you know, an impulsiveness, uh, kind of a lust for adventure and a tendency to be maybe dogmatic or even fanatical uh, in their beliefs, usually pretty good philosophical debaters. And Monday, he, he did go to law school. He did represent himself at his trial, although not terribly successfully, often to his, his own detriment. You know, Mars and Sagittarius can certainly uh, have a very strong belief in itself and abilities uh, that, that may or may not actually land <laughs> in real life. <laughs> and, you know, certainly with uh, with Bundy, you know, he did have a, a very unrealistic sense of his own abilities. Hubris can certainly be uh, something you might find with, with Mars, <clears throat> Mars and Sagittarius. And, you know, Bundy, uh, as he, you know, his murder spree really picked up, you know, he did have a sense that he was, uh, that the cops would never catch him. It was just impossible to the point where he, when he was caught, he had a hard time, um, know, reconciling with that. But nonetheless, I mean, at his trial, even though it can be kind of comical watching it at the end, even as the judge was sentencing, sentencing him to death, you know, was kind of admitting that he was impressed with, with Bundy to some degree. Anyway, so we really just keep getting this, this theme reinforced with Bundy of looking the part, but not actually, not actually doing any of it. Like even with uh, athletics, support, you know, sports specifically. Bundy liked to tell people about the sports that he played or awards that he won, but he didn't actually really do any any of that. And he didn't really do, he was not athletic. I think uh, hunting and murdering women was really the, his only sport of choice. That and skiing, uh, he was known to, to enjoy a good ski from time to time. Now, that's not to say that there weren't more energetic and productive periods of Ted Bundy's life. He, you know, did have a, you know, pretty successful run with the Republican Party in Washington. He did complete his degree in psychology. There are certainly many things that, that Ted Bundy could have been successful at if he had really wanted to. 
you know, the fifth house, it's a positive house. You know, it's a house of good things, fun things, enjoyable things. It can be kind of the house of doing whatever the fuck you want. And what can be maybe a dark side of that is that the things that are enjoyable to us are not always good for us or good for other people or necessarily productive. Uh, people with really heavy fifth house emphasis are definitely going to gravitate strongly towards things they enjoy doing. And sometimes that can indicate getting to do what you love for a living. Sometimes that can also indicate doing what the fuck you want and not necessarily living a very productive life. Unfortunately, in Bundy's case, the, and the ego boost that he really got from you know success in the political sphere or in the academic sphere just really didn't do it for him the way that murdering women did. And that ultimately became the main focus of his attention. Now, in regards to the moon, the moon's very important in any chart, particularly in a night chart, as it functions as the sect light. It's the source of light at nighttime, right? And while the moon, you know, definitely does say a lot about emotional uh, response and general state, it also is like one of the just general significators for the incarnation of the person in general, you know, the body also, the mother, women, a lot falls under the moon. Um, you know, being in a Jupiter ruled sign, it's generally pretty positive placement. You know, people with the moon in general, uh, Sagittarius are pretty upbeat, don't tend to dwell on things or or get really caught up in, you know, deep, heavy emotions. And while <clears throat> the uh, the moon in Sagittarius tends to be a above averagely happy moon, it's not a very moony moon. The moon in Sagittarius doesn't make a traditional aspect with, you know, either Cancer, its ruling sign, Taurus, its exaltation, or, you know, Scorpio, its fall, or Capricorn, its detriment. You know, it's not really tuned in to the major issues of the moon. Often, uh, moon and Sagittarius people um, are very intelligent, uh, but they take a, say, a philosophical approach to emotional topics. Often, moon and Sagittarius people feel the most at home when they're out, out and about traveling. You know, they're not usually homebodies. They're not usually in a big hurry to settle down and you know, have a family uh, or have a bunch of people to take care of. Not that they don't ever. There's a lot of other factors that you, know, you would typically take into account. There is, however, a, a general restlessness. There's a, a kind of fear of uh, losing personal freedom um, or being tied down. You know, they like kind of like to keep their options open most of the time, at least, you know, when they're younger. Kind of the uh, other side of that is sometimes a tendency to wander and maybe feel feel, feel kind of lost. There can be uh, a moodiness to the moon and Sag people. You know, one of the moon's many roles is kind of as the like emotional processing unit. And if the moon and Sagittarius person has uh, some negative shit to feel. They're gonna probably prefer to to move on from that rather than sit and process it. So there can be kind of a buildup sometimes. You know, they really don't like having their uh, their good vibes uh, fucked with. And there can often be um, a lot of denial. And, you know, while that particular characteristic, the den denial element, uh, definitely shows up for Bundy, uh, his mother, interestingly, I believe it was a reporter or <clears throat> maybe a police officer, detective, you know, many years after 
Bundy had been put in prison, kind of leading up to his execution when he had started to confess periodically. You know, he would kind of confess and then kind of go back on it and deny ever having said it. For the most part, he really didn't like to discuss his role in the crimes. When he did, it was usually in the third person. But uh, when this person, you know, met with Bundy's mother and kind of told her that, that, you know, he kind of admitted to it because she really was in denial about his guilt. She kind of went like, oh, dear, in (laughs) this moment. And then uh, was like, would anybody like some pie? You know, I have no idea what her her moon was, but, uh, you know, it often says a lot about the mother. His mother did also, you know, move him across country when he was young. Leah a moon in Sagittarius signification, but definitely get the sense that she didn't want to really take too seriously anything that was going on with her son, even kind of growing up. Now, it's also worth noting that Bundy did hold a lot of anger towards his mom, a lot of resentment for keeping, you know, the truth about who his parents were from him. And, you you know, you do see that uh, with the moon being pretty closely conjunct with Mars, it is separating but even just that co-presence, you know, we don't necessarily love to see the moon and Mars together. You generally say that, that a person with a moon-Mars connection uh, has some irritability or anger to work with that often stems from the relationship with their mother. You know, it's always important to look at the next applying aspect for the moon. And if, you know, we were looking at the his chart before we had discovered the outer planets that are, you know, not visible with the naked eye, it would look like the moon is basically void of course by pretty much any definition. Essentially, a void of course moon is a moon that is not going to be making, uh, it's not going to be applying to any aspects with any other planets, either by the modern definition before it leaves the sign that it's currently in, but more traditionally, you know, within the next 30 degrees. Now, it will eventually make a sextile with Jupiter at 13 degrees Scorpio. So, you know, it does have an aspect about at 26 or so degrees. You don't need to get too hung up on on the exact number, but that will often show up as somebody who has difficulty, you know, making connections or finding direction in life. Now, one of the big mitigating factors for having a void of course moon is having a benefic planet, Venus or Jupiter, in an angular house, like the first, fourth, seventh, or tenth. And Bundy has that. He has two of them. And he did uh, find a direction of a kind and the condition of those benefics does a really great job of describing exactly what that direction was. Now, the moon is applying to an opposition with Uranus uh, within about three degrees, which is certainly going to destabilize the emotions and, the, and really the life of the, the person in general. It is probably fair to say that Bundy was emotionally disturbed in some way, he was diagnosed at one point with manic depression, uh, I believe when he was in prison, which, you know, sure, maybe, but he was known, <clears throat> excuse me, to, you know, have sudden shifts in, in mood, which he was for the most part very good at keeping hidden from people. But, you know, his <clears throat> behavior and emotional state uh, did become visibly erratic as, you know, he really started killing. Uh, I think that kind of mask really started to slip off and he did become very unstable during the period where he you know after his initial arrest and before he was formally charged with murder uh, the police were following him and he knew it and he did become 
very paranoid. And, you know, when he was imprisoned, that that restlessness and that uh, need to be free really fueled uh, his, you know, two successful escape attempts. Now, I've definitely spent a lot more time with the Sagittarius placements than I had planned to because it's really in the fourth house where we get to the meat, to the real interesting shit that's going on (laughs) with this chart. But before I do, I would like to read just a quick, fun little excerpt from book one of the anthology of Thaddeus Fallon's. Saturn, Mars, and the Moon cause men to be venturesome in their business enterprises and noble, but ineffective, meeting with reversals and violence. They become in turn violent, reclusive, wicked. They have a plundering and thievish disposition and become defendants and trials. They experience detention and criminal charges, unless of course the nativity happens to be fond of wrestling or of weapons, in which case the detention configuration is fulfilled by the holds of wrestling. Some become injured or diseased and will suffer a violent end. I think he makes a good point, and it's actually something I'm a big believer in, is that uh, the symbolism in a chart can play out in lots of different ways. Usually my recommendation for a really difficult configuration is find a, a more productive or less unpleasant version of that to live out, offset you know, really difficult placements that way. Wrestling, you know, might have actually worked out pretty well. Saturn with the kind of constraining, that's what he means by holds. And you got your Mars moon, a competitive sport where you constrain or restrict the movement of other humans' bodies. There are indeed many ways to do that. But, you know, I mean, obviously something uh, as simple as wrestling is not going to be the cure for something as complex as, you know, psychopathy. Unfortunately, with all my uh, astrological powers, I do not know the cure for that. But, you know, more generally for um, anger issues or an uh, more general uh, aggressive tendency. And, you know, call it like it is. Um, Some of us just like to punch people. And there are other people in the world that will let you punch them. Usually as long as they can punch you back. But, you know, maybe if Bundy had been introduced to wrestling at like the age of five, that uh, course of life could have been altered a bit. Anyway, in the fourth, we have Jupiter at 13 degrees, uh, applying to a conjunction with the IC at 16 degrees, Venus at 20 uh, retrograde, and Mercury at 24 retrograde. And the fourth house signifies, uh, you know, family, um heritage and all all that, but uh, it's really what kind of lays at the foundation of a person and their personality, you know, and where do we get that from, you know, our upbringing. Uh, The fourth house represents, uh, you know, that which is personal, private, very importantly, secrets, secrets that the person knows about. Often uh, with planets in, say, the 12th or the 8th, you may see things that, you know, the person isn't aware of because those houses don't make traditional aspects to the first house. But the fourth is stuff that we're very aware of, um, stuff that we don't necessarily share with anyone other than the people that we're closest to. People with uh, heavy fourth house emphasis tend to be rather private, sometimes secretive. Uh, You know, Scorpio is a, a rather private and secretive sign as well usually have a lot going on uh, with their family history, usually pretty colorful. 
um, but they're also often very, very defined by it. You know, whatever the relationship with their family might be, it plays a very significant role in defining them. Now, all on its own, this looks kind of nice or, you know, not too bad at least. Uh, you got Venus and Jupiter together in the same sign. Venus is retrograde, but through that retrograde is like applying to a conjunction with Jupiter, which isn't, isn't bad at all. That's kind of nice. Venus is in Scorpio. It's a sign where Venus isn't usually too happy. And being retrograde, uh, you do tend to get a Venus that is not super interested in consensus or coming, coming to agreement with others. Doubly so in the sign of Scorpio, uh, a Mars-ruled sign. Which, you know, it's not so great because Venus uh, in a night chart is kind of the, has like the big role to play in, uh, you know, delivering the good stuff in life. While Jupiter isn't at its strongest at night um, and not, you know, fabulously strong in the sign of Scorpio, it does tend to be a little prone to indulging in moral relativism, you know, a little bit of subjective um, uh, morality. Uh, you know, speaking for myself and probably most of the people who would listen to something like a birth chart reading for a serial killer, I don't see anything wrong with finding beauty in or finding deeper philosophical meaning in things like horror movies or true crime, which, you know, I would expect from from this combination. And, uh, you know, Bundy, uh, he was a bit of a fan of the true crime, you know, <laughs> um, maybe maybe a bit too big of a fan. Um, but I think it becomes really relevant uh, when you notice that uh, all those fourth house planets are being uh, overcome by a superior square from Saturn and Pluto. It's actually real, real tight with Pluto and Jupiter. But when you have a planet like Saturn in a condition that's really making it about as malefic as it can be, overcoming those planets, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury by a square, you're going to see some not great stuff come out of that. I mean, this is really a pretty menacing configuration. I mean, it's pretty bad. <clears throat> there are some ways that it could be worse. Like the fact that for most, for the most part, it's just a sign-based square uh, between Saturn and you know, Venus and Mercury, at least, and Jupiter is separating. And, you know, it's worth giving uh, Bundy some credit for only murdering women that he didn't know. He was, in fact, able to carry on several relationships with women who he did not murder. Uh, makes this such a nasty setup is really just the, the lack of reception taking place between these planets. Venus and Saturn in particular are, you know, they're already in, in detriment. And really, none of the planets involved have any significant rulership or dignity in Leo or Scorpio. I mean, Jupiter has a little bit in uh, in Leo and fire signs in general with triplicity. Venus has a bit in water signs, which, you know, helps her out of her detriment a little bit. But basically what it means is that there's not really much reason for the Scorpio planets and the Leo planets to really work with each other. You know, when I think of reception, planets having a rulership or a sort of guest host relationship with planets they're making aspects with, as a former student of international relations, one of the things we studied was the way that international trade and economic interdependence between nations is really a key factor and arguably the key factor in maintaining peace between nations. It's a big reason why we 
you know, haven't had a world war since the end of World War II. In essence, peace has become more profitable than war, at least amongst the great powers, you know, the more economically developed nations. And similarly, with planets and signs interacting in a chart, it's nice to see planets either, you know, in their own sign and uh, some kind of dignity, you know, so they have kind of their own resources and they don't need to fuck with anyone else too much. Or making aspects with planets that it rules or the ruling planet of the sign it's in. But in a chart like Bundy's where there is really not very much of that going on at all, it's similar to kind of an international environment where resources are scarce and nations aren't making strong agreements with each other or trading with each other. And that Saturn in Bundy's first house starts to look a little bit like a Genghis Khan or Adolf Hitler or some other conqueror ready to swoop in and take what they want by force. Really, Venus and Jupiter are being damaged, but uh, Saturn, you know, is benefiting to some degree. Um, and, you know, that normally would be reflected in, in a person's life. Unfortunately, in this case, it shows up as Ted really enjoying the pain and suffering that he inflicted on uh, the women that he killed. But we didn't say a ton about Pluto uh, in the first, which is, you know, very relevant, though. <clears throat> Pluto on its own doesn't tend to do a whole lot. I find uh, it really needs other planets to play with. And in this case, it has other planets to play with, for sure. Pluto is, you know, it's an interesting planet. It does uh, interesting things that are sometimes hard to describe. But a lot of times, the first thing that comes up with Pluto is, is obsession, right? You know, Pluto will kind of drill a hole into a topic and digs into the deep, dark, nasty underbelly of something exposing, you know, what's underneath. I'm a big fan of uh, the astrologer Patrick Watson's analogy he uses to describe Pluto as it, it makes planets radioactive. Now, that's a really good analogy when you think about what Pluto does and what, you know, radioactivity does to things, as well as how we respond to radioactivity. Radioactivity to a body, it causes... Uh, rapid mutation of the cells, almost always killing them, but in some cases, at least in theory, <laughs> you know, creating mutations that uh, might be otherwise positive. In fact, there's arguments that that you know, there's kind of the radiation we that we get exposed to naturally, you know, has some role to play in uh, how evolution takes place. Well, that sort of gradual and kind a of low level mutation that occurs. You know, when that uh, awesome mutation eventually comes, creating that superior version of the species, if you will, kind of necessitates that the old version has to die off. It's a natural part of evolution. But that kind of process is best when it takes place over a very long period of time and when it's very slow and gradual. And most of the time, that's, you know, how Pluto works. Often when there's too much radiation or radioactivity, like say uh, a big barrel of radioactive goo, uh, what do we do with that? You know, we stick it in a barrel and we bury it underground and hope that uh, nobody, you know, accidentally digs it up for however many half-lives for that radioactivity to decay. Often Pluto will bring out the deeper primordial or, or darker part of the sign that it's in or, you know, a planet that it's touching and make us want to 
bury it or hide it because it's dangerous or frightens us. But, you know, it's always kind of there whispering to us. And often it becomes hard to ignore when you have really tight aspects with Pluto or, you know, a really intense Pluto transit. Um, For the most part, in real life, it doesn't play out in quite such a melodramatic and negative way. I mean, you, you often do have a lot of negative experiences with Pluto, but often you end up exposing something that is uh, fundamentally true and maybe not even as scary as you thought it was. But anyway, with the Pluto and Leo generation, it was a, a generation that was obsessed in many ways with individuality and personal will. And you had the counterculture movement and um, Aleister Crowley became a big figure in popular culture, right? Lema, uh, do what thou willst is the whole of the law. You get the first you know, rock stars and you get rock stars being kind of the principal figures in culture in many ways, you know, the kind of prime movers in cultural development. Now, turning to Bundy himself, who had it very prominently in his first house, you know, usually you would think um, this person might uh, have a bit of an obsession with self-aggrandizement, somebody who is or would at least like to be in a position of power, right? Power that would magnify and intensify the sense of self, the identity, you know? In many ways, a person might define themselves by the degree of power they had over other people, especially with the presence of Saturn, where the ability to express and define the self is going to be very restricted, confused, frustrated. Uh, This is going to be somebody who is very likely to get the wrong idea about who they are, and that played out pretty literally in Bundy's case. From an early age, Bundy was very much reported to be rather fixated on seeing himself as somebody who would grow up to be very powerful and very special and very, you know, person of clout, person, you know, deserving of respect. And Bundy very much, you know, needed to see himself that way. He's also somebody who would lie about things that he accomplished, Saturn, to project the this image of success and authority. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Saturn and Leo has this uh, association with narcissism, Saturn being the planet that defines that boundary between uh, oneself and other people, especially for Bundy, it's in it's ruling his seventh house and being in the the sign of Leo, you know, the me sign, really, it's the we planet in the me sign and hanging out with Pluto, which has this tendency to take things to the extreme, basically distilling something down to its essence and exaggerating it, often creating a a very extreme version of something that uh, we get obsessed with. Pluto totalizes, in a sense. And when you think, how might Pluto totalize what Saturn and Leo wants to do? It might look a bit like how can I make someone else part of, of me permanently and forever? Now, keeping all that in mind as really kind of the general agenda of Saturn and Pluto in Leo in the first, 
we can start to get a sense of what kind of damage they're doing to those fourth house planets and in what ways they might uh, want to co-opt or, or use you know, those fourth house planets to kind of suit their ends. Jupiter is in a really, really tight square, uh, pretty much exact square with Pluto. You know, it's applying within about 16 minutes and separating from a square from Saturn. But in this case, you know, Jupiter is uh, besieged, in a sense, <laughs> by the, the rays of Saturn and Pluto to the point where, you know, maybe it can't do so much to help out Venus. Now, Jupiter, you know, has a lot of different jobs. Um, it's going to have a lot of different jobs in any given chart, you know, depending on what houses it rules, what house it's, uh, what house it's in. Um, but it also just has the Jupiter job. And one of the Jupiter jobs is really distinguishing between right and wrong, you know, the moralizing faculty, of distinguishing what is and is not fair, uh, what you know is justice, what makes life good, and how do we create more of that. Now, Jupiter in Scorpio, when it's not afflicted, is generally pretty creative and pretty good at doing that job in and amidst the kind of darker, we'll say muddy or dirty waters <laughs> in Scorpio. You know, it's kind of good at making uh, making good stuff out of that. And, you know, that's a good function to have. You know, if we don't find good and positive ways to use or clean our sewage, it will eventually overflow and take over the city, right? However, with Bundy uh, in his chart, that faculty is damaged and kind of being forced to serve the agenda of, for lack of a better word, really malefic, <laughs> um, these really malefic planets in the first. Now, to highlight how that really played out for Bundy, read a little quote here. He said, guilt is an illusion, a social construction to control people. I am in an enviable position to not have to feel guilt. Now, Saturn is often associated with guilt, uh, creating guilt. Often where Saturn is in a given chart, is going to be a area of life where that person tends to feel guilty or have guilt. Now, it kind of seems like uh, maybe Saturn and Pluto sort of used that Jupiter faculty to construct a moral argument against the need to feel guilt, right? Because, you know, fuck guilt. Who needs that shit? It's rather annoying uh, when you're trying to do the kind of things that Bundy liked to do, right? Now, you know, for every person in the world with Leo rising, you know, they're going to have Jupiter ruling both their fifth and the eighth. And that does not mean that every Leo rising uh, is going to conflate sexuality and death. Okay. There's a lot of other ways that Jupiter can perform the functions of both of those houses, both separately or, you know, combine them in ways that are much more constructive or le much less disturbing. The fifth and eighth houses are about more than just sex and death. But in this case, we can see, uh, what do we have? We have somebody who liked to murder women, got sexual gratification from murdering women, and hey, like to fuck their dead bodies, right? So it, it's kind of a worst case scenario, which is what you tend to see with a really bad setup like this. It's like you have this badly afflicted Jupiter still trying to be a benefic for Ted, like you have these really not well-intentioned planets in the first house who really more or less have the run of the chart and they're saying to Jupiter, hey, I want to I wanna be a big shot. I want to feel powerful and I've got some real nasty ideas about what I can do with Venus down there and I know you can help me out. 
So give me what you got. And Jupiter's like, I don't know, guys, that's not really my thing. Maybe we can channel that in a more constructive way. And, you know, it works for a while. But, you know, the first house is really able to twist Jupiter's arm. So eventually he's like, okay, all right, you want to kidnap and murder women. I can probably help you out with hiding the bodies. And, you know, if you were to maybe try eating them, it would be kind of like they're part of you forever, like you'd own their souls. And the first house is like, Jupiter, I like the way you think, you rascal. Keep it up and I'll let you write a rape prevention pamphlet. And, you know, if you think I'm pushing it a little bit with Jupiter there, um, you got Venus, right, in Scorpio retrograde, also being overcome by the, the sign-based square. And this is where it gets really interesting to me. Venus and Saturn are exactly uh, on each other's contra and Tisha. I'll just say that it has to do with the solstice points. And with Antitia, very simplistically, it's, it's kind of thought of as a secretive conjunction. Um, and the contra and Tisha is kind of like a secretive, hidden uh, opposition. Now, I personally think that uh, they are a lot more complex than that. But one of the things they often show up as uh, that kind of signify a sort of coercive or manipulative relationship between the two planets, depending on the planets involved. Traditionally, it was thought that the planets in the signs on the lighter half of the zodiac, basically from the beginning of Aries to the end of Virgo, were thought to have the upper hand in the Tantra and Tisha relationship. So this kind of looks like Saturn having this kind of extra power over Venus, this ability to kind of coerce or, or manipulate Venus into doing what it wants. Now, Venus is a general significator for sexuality, you know, relationships, uh, women, relationships with women. And, you know, Venus and Scorpio already tends to enjoy maybe playing with power dynamics in relationships, dabbling in like the darker, freakier side of sexuality. And in this relationship with Saturn, you get somebody who was very successful in coercing and manipulating women into his car so that he could, you know, capture and control them and kill them. You know, Scorpio kind of deals with death and decay. Saturn also kind of deals in death. I've just never seen necrophilia spelled out so clearly in a birth chart <laughs> ever. Not that I've ever been really looking for it, uh, except for Bundy. Um, you know, if you if you ever if you get a reading with me, I'm not going to be trying to figure out if you're a necrophiliac or not. But you know, when you see a pattern uh, in a chart that just repeats, that's just all over, all over the place. Uh, you really got to call call it like it is. You know, a lot of people have Saturn Venus squares. Uh, our positions are just hard aspects between Venus and Saturn. And, you know, they are often difficult. The vast majority of them are not necrophiliacs, you know, or, or even uh, particularly keen on hurting anyone. They might have uh, difficult relationships or, you know, there might be some conflation of the principles of pain, Saturn, and pleasure, Venus. And you'll really see that with soft aspects too. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's either it's your thing or it's not. Between two consenting adults, you know, it doesn't have to be this uh, really nasty thing, right? It can be fun. <laughs> again, it just shows up over and over again. You know, like you have uh, Mercury opposing the fixed star Al Gol. 
which is known uh, among many other things for death by decapitation. Its meaning is derived from it being part of the constellation Perseus, uh, where you know he's holding Medusa's decapitated head. And you know one of the things Bunny liked to do was uh, keep the heads of <laughs> the women he killed and do stuff with them, or more specifically, fuck fuck their heads. Uh, so again, it's everywhere. You know, it's also uh, Mercury and Venus, they're under the beams. They say metaphorically that planets under the beams kind of get gobbled up by the sun. Sun ruling uh, that Saturn. <laughs> he liked to, he liked to eat, eat them a bit too, you know. Mercury's even ruling his second house, which among other things signifies what someone likes to eat, relationship to food. And, you know, Mercury is applying to Venus down there. Uh, so what did he like to eat? Again, it's a very literal chart. <laughs> But, you know, it's a good thing to bear in mind as we, another quick visit to our friend Vedius Valens, that maybe things that the ancients considered depraved wouldn't be considered depraved today. But there is kind of an extreme end of that spectrum that sort of transcends time and culture. (laughs) That maybe we're all like, that's not okay. Like fucking decapitated heads. But uh, Rhetorius said this... Venus and Saturn Square are much worse. Men take prostitutes as wives, and they become loathsome and depraved. It is even worse if the configuration is in the Descendant or the IC. The deterioration noted above becomes even worse if Mars is in conjunction square opposition. Men then act shamefully and are denounced by everyone. Often, because of this, they become a subject of scandal, are imprisoned, and meet a bad death. The stars are in lurking signs or degrees. Men enjoy impure passions and unnatural pleasures. Now, Mars is not in hard aspect to either Saturn or Venus. You know, Venus is in a Mars-ruled sign. Saturn is, you know, trine Mars, and trines are not always friendly. While I don't know what he means by a lurking degree, Venus is in a smoky degree, and Saturn is in a dark degree. Sounds rather lurky, if you ask me. I always find it interesting when the often extreme descriptions that ancient astrologers use actually play out rather literally uh, in people's lives, usually in extreme cases, right? Now, as we really ought to move along, I'll lastly say about Venus, that Venus also rules the 10th house. 10th house generally signifies what we, uh, what our reputation is, what we're known for doing in the world, our actions in the world. It's the most visible house in your chart. Now, there are many ways that uh, any planet in a chart can make itself known in the 10th house, uh, or really any house for that matter, but really the ruling planet and its kind of main relationships are what's going to really come through. And I think it's pretty clear that Venus and that relationship with Saturn is really what Bundy is most known for. Ted Bundy is famous for his ability to use charm and deception to convince unsuspecting women to get in his car. <laughs> uh, Venus rules the, the third as well, where he would take them somewhere hidden, private, fourth house, capture, detain, torture, rape, murder them, all because it gave him sexual gratification to do so. Now, I really do want to get on to... Applying some timing techniques to Bundy's chart. I also, I mean, I don't want to like belabor the point. There, uh, 
uh, it's like the same thing keeps getting repeated over and over again with this chart. I mean, you have Venus. Venus is also under the beams, you know, of the sun. It's within 15 degrees. So adding to that hidden element and also the sun kind of gobbling Venus up, you know. <laughs> Venus is retrograde. Uh, so there's the non-consensual element <laughs> of uh, Ted Bundy's sexuality. You know, Venus is also debilitated. And, you know, it's rarely this literal, but uh, Bundy liked to, you know, he liked to bludgeon his victims and keep them unconscious, you know, <laughs> to literally debilitate them. And, you know, it's really not common for astrology to play out this literally. Uh, it's literally <laughs> the most literal chart I've ever encountered, to be honest. But now I want to move on to applying some timing techniques. I primarily use annual perfections for timing. And that is primarily what I'll be using. But while I am not an expert in the use of zodiacal releasing, I do like to use it for kind of the big picture stuff. And I actually ended up looking at Bundy's zodiacal releasing periods before I really started going over his perfections. And it ended up confirming my suspicion that activations of that fourth house of his were really going to signify periods that were significant in his evolution towards what he ultimately became, a serial murderer of women. Now, with zodiacal releasing, when you want to see when a person is likely to have a period of increased activity in terms of their career or just, you know, their general activity in the world, you release from the lot of spirit. And when you get to a sign that is on an angle from the lot of fortune, you get your your peak period. It basically symbolically represents a period where your intentions and activity in the world, spirit, align with fate in a sense, uh, or kind of the material circumstances of your life. And in Ted Bundy's chart, uh, we have the lot of fortune in the first house in Leo, ex pretty much exactly conjuncts Saturn, which it's fair to say that that is not a great start if you're looking for indications of a happily ever after for someone. Not that I'd say that in and of itself, it's the end of the world, but it doesn't exactly bode well. And then we have uh, the lot of spirit in Virgo in the second house. Now, again, I'm not going to go into interpreting all the periods i'm just going to note when we hit a peak period and uh, in this case happens to be the the fourth house that gets activated so applying the technique you get a virgo period from 1946 when he was born until we get to a libra period in august 12 let's see august 12th of 1966 and from there uh, we have an eight-year period until we hit scorpio fourth house July 1st of 1974. And it is in fact 1974 when his first known murder takes place, or if you will, the beginning of his career as a serial killer uh, really takes off. Now, 1974 was also a fourth house perfection year for Bundy. In fact, it ends up lining up a little bit better. That perfection year would have started November 24th of 1973 and lasted till November 24th, let's see, January 4th of 1974, when Bundy broke into the basement apartment of a young woman named Karen Sparks. Bundy you know, bludgeoned her unconscious, 
and uh, sexually assaulted her and left her for dead. She she did survive. However, she was permanently, physically, and mentally disabled. Now, it's interesting that on January 4th, Venus and Jupiter were together in the sky uh, in Ted's seventh house, making pretty tight oppositions to Ted's natal Saturn and natal Pluto. So, you know, these two planets that are, you know, together in his chart, angular, making a hard aspect, really receiving a hard aspect from Saturn and Pluto in his fourth are now in a seventh in a house that's ruled by Saturn and also, you know, making hard aspects. Often when you see a placement being both activated by perfection and then activated by transit, the symbolism in the chart will often play out in a very vivid way. It's kind of like an opportunity for those same planets to deliver on what's promised in the chart. Now, the following month, um, February 1st, Ted is much more successful. He does more or less the same thing. He breaks into the basement apartment of a young woman, bludgeons her unconscious, but this time he takes her with him and murders her. Now, this is within just a few days of Ted's progressed moon return, which is essentially when you advance the placement of the natal moon uh, by about a degree every month, eventually makes its way back to its natal position um, at about the same age for everybody, around age 27. The progressed moon return is really a kind of a coming of age point in everyone's life, coming into your own or a, a reaching um, the kind of a next stage in maturity and adulthood, coming full circle. It tends to happen not long before the Saturn return, and this does coincide with Ted uh, arguably stepping into what some might argue was his destiny. While I might be a little more reluctant to assign such a specific role as serial killer to somebody's destiny, it does seem to really coincide with Ted Bundy coming into his own <laughs> and maturing into what he did ultimately become, right? Now, usually when you hit a period, uh, either by perfection or by zodiacal releasing, where the sign that is activated contains uh, a benefic, or, or in this case, both benefics, it usually uh, carries with it positive experiences for the individual. And 1974 does seem to be the year where Ted is really enjoys himself the most. Um, you know, those benefics are being overcome by the most difficult planet in his chart, the out-of-sec malefic Saturn in his first. However, you know, this period is also laying the groundwork for what would end up being a very negative experience for him, going to prison and eventually being executed. And, you know, it's notable that uh, 1974 really just seemed to be a peak period in Ted's public life as well. He was, ironically, working as assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, uh, where, among other things, he wrote and helped publish a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Later, he you know he ended up working at the Department of Emergency Services. Uh, it was a state agency involved in the search for missing women. Now, if Bundy had just done that, that would have fit in perfectly with his birth chart. Um, now, it was also during this period that Ted Bundy met Carol Ann Boone, twice divorced mother of two, who would eventually play a very important role in his life. He would end up uh, marrying her while on trial, ultimately conceiving a 
daughter with her in a, uh, shall we say, unapproved conjugal visit. I mean, pretty much everything in his fifth house is under the beams of the sun and also being eclipsed. So stands to reason that even his conceiving of children would be done in secret. Now, July of 1974, uh, July 14th, shortly after he entered that peak period, Bundy pulls off a, a double hitter of sorts, kidnapping two women in the same day from the same beach. And this is when major news coverage really begins and connecting all these murders, you know, public awareness that a serial killer is on the loose really begins. And, you know, this kind of atmosphere of fear uh, really starts to develop. And that is very appropriate for the start of one of these angular peak periods. You usually expect to see someone come to prominence, which he certainly did. But it was also on that same day that he really planted the seed for his own downfall. While he was on that beach playing his numbers game, talking to women, he was overheard introducing himself as Ted, which was reported to the police, filed as evidence, and came up in the news reports about the serial killer that was on the loose. And that, combined with Ted's kind of strange behavior at the time, really activated the suspicions of Elizabeth Klopfer, Ted's girlfriend at the time, who did call the police tip hotline. Uh, several times, which, you know, would end up adding to the case against Ted when he was eventually caught. And just when uh, this fourth house perfection year was wrapping up, November 8th, uh, Bundy attempted to kidnap uh, another 18-year-old, a telephone operator, Carol Durant, while posing as a police officer. He apparently didn't do a very good job either as posing as a police officer or handcuffing her. And in 1976, it would be for the attempted assault and kidnapping of Carol DeRoach that Bundy would be tried and convicted. So we can see that this uh, fourth house perfection, the pivot around which his, his life really turns. So if we wanted to get an idea of perhaps when the more pivotal or um, defining moments or events might have taken place that contributed to you know the development of uh, say the pathology that really fully manifested in 1974. We want to look for the periods where that fourth house is being activated. Now that's going to be you know the other fourth house perfection years, but also the second house perfection years. Because if you were to perfect from the fourth house, you would find that the ruler is in the second house from the fourth, which is going to activate it. So Bundy's first birthday would have uh, initiated the beginning of his first second house perfection year. Now that would have activated both the fourth house and the third house, given that the ruler of the third, Venus, is in the fourth, the second sign from the third. So we don't really have any records of anything specific happening to Ted Bundy at age one, but we do know that at the time he was living with his maternal grandparents. We know that his grandfather um, was a bit of a scumbag. He was known to be abusive, uh, violent, and had a tendency to talk to himself as well as people who weren't there. We know that uh, Bundy exhibited strange and potentially violent behavior from a very young age. We also have the ruling planet of the second in the fourth, also being overcome by Saturn and Pluto, along with Jupiter and Venus. 
Age one is typically a time when children are really developing their language skills. Mercury, being the ruling planet, will tell you a lot about how somebody communicates. Struggled with a stutter uh, at a young age. And, you know, Mercury is retrograde, but it's also about to station direct uh, within seven days uh, of the time of his birth. Now, that's really going to intensify what Mercury signifies. You know, it's also under the beams. It's kind of being overheated by the sun. So uh, Mercury is like a very fast-moving kind of hyperactive Mercury. Now, stutters usually come about as a result of anxiety and, you know, in some cases have their origins in, you know, early childhood trauma. Given his living environment at the time, it's really not impossible that a very, very young Bundy may have experienced or witnessed some very significant form of abuse that perhaps left lasting scars on Bundy's psychology. Now, I won't dig into the third house uh, activation too much at the moment, but just I'm going to keep it in my back pocket because I think it'll come up later. But that uh, the fourth house gets activated you know, more directly during the fourth house perfection year at age three. And now that was the year that his mother took uh, custody of him and uh, moved him across the country to Washington. Now, we don't know if there was a specific event or if it was just the you know, general shittiness of her father that spurred her to take him and leave. But it's, you know, possible that some formative trauma might have occurred around that time. And, you know, the moving uh, may well have been uh, traumatic, at the very least confusing for, you know, a three-year-old. Because, you know, to be quite honest, I'm confused about what uh, what the actual story was, since he allegedly didn't know that uh, his mother was actually his mother until, according to one source, uh, about age 15, which would have been another uh, fourth house perfection year, but also possibly around age 22. Personally, I think that 15 is a better candidate just from an astrological perspective, but, you know, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, necessarily true. But nonetheless, uh, psychologists do seem to point to the confusion around his parentage and the resulting resentment towards his mother as playing a significant role in the development of his psychology. Now, another interesting date to look at is August 31st, 1961, which is the day that eight-year-old Anne-Marie Burr, a young girl living in Bundy's neighborhood at the time, went missing. And many people, including the girl's parents, believe that she was Bundy's first victim. Now, that's certainly possible. It would make a lot of sense, given, um, you know, Bundy was about 14 years old. We know that around this time, he had developed the interest in pornography and images of dead women from true crime magazines. And I like this a lot more timing-wise for Bundy's first murder, if it had been maybe just a few months later, because a few months later, on his 15th birthday, he would have entered uh, fourth house perfection. Not that the third house is necessarily bad. It is uh, Libra and Venus ruled, and Venus is in the fourth house, and you're going to get, you know, an activation there. And the third house Neptune is pretty interesting for other reasons. Often people with uh, Neptune in the third have difficulty nailing down regular routines, being a house of communication. They're often good at adding color, you know, to their their conversation style. 
Um, but, you know, also lying can, can come up too. Uh, Neptune is a planet that deals with deception. Uh, that's not always going to be the case, but it is another of many, many indicators that Bundy has in his chart that points to somebody who is deceptive or uses deception. Neptune in Libra is pretty interesting in and of itself. We're going to get a little off track talking about it, but do you think it's relevant for him given pretty, you know, solid sextiles between Saturn in his first and Mars in his fifth? But I very much associate Neptune and Libra with the American dream. Not that people in other countries didn't also have Neptune and Libra, but that is really where you see the emergence of that very distinctly Venusian and kind of synthetic aesthetic that uh, is very much permeated the 1950s and really influenced the people born during that time. Bundy was somebody who very much wanted to look the part of kind of the all-American, handsome, successful, conservative even. You know, he was a big uh, participant in uh, the Republican Party. But you also get a lot of people describing the experience of never really knowing what Bundy was up to. If people asked what he was doing, he almost pathologically lied about it and um, would usually tell a story that, you know, made him look good. And, you know, even you know, with those sextiles with Saturn and Mars, not that they're, you know, typically anything to write home about. This seemed to be very much a tool in his toolbox. He was very much able to use his good looks, charm, general affability to maintain this appearance of somebody who's, you know, very innocuous and harmless um, and, you know, appealing I mean, even when he was on trial for murder, there were women across the country that just were in love with, with Bundy. People didn't want to believe he was guilty because he was, you know, such a such a nice guy, you know, so good looking. And really everything about his persona and demeanor appealed to this kind of idealized model of what a young, upwardly mobile, clean cut white American male should be. And, you know, interesting, too, is that there are multiple reports uh, from victims that escaped or, you know, people that interviewed him, even family members from when he was a kid, that, you know, when he got angry or, or if he started, like, talking about the murders, his appearance would physically change. He would look like this kind of totally different person. One of his interviewers said that his eyes would turn black, which gets really interesting with Saturn in the first and Saturn, you know, tending to feign appearances it has kind of Neptune and the sun at its disposal, very capable of, of putting on a pleasing facade. And it's actually something that Bundy said, I wish I could remember the exact quote, but something like that the American dream was to be invisible to everyone but yourself. And you can really see that all over his chart, but you know, that Neptune being ruled by Venus in Scorpio, retrograde, under the beams, and in the fourth house, which is very much that stuff that is invisible to everyone but you, and with just how heavily involved Venus is with uh, Saturn and Leo in the first, you can really kind of get a sense of how he might have come to that conclusion. I don't think that is most people's conception of the American dream, even though, you know, in, in practice it probably probably ends up looking a lot like that. Now, anyway, back to the possibility of Bundy having killed Anne-Marie Burr. When you look at his transits on that day, you see that Uranus and the North Node were in a conjunction on his ascendant pretty closely. Mars was conjunct his natal Neptune, and Neptune was applying uh, within three degrees to his natal Jupiter. 
And also worth noting, you know, the moon uh, was transiting his MC on that day, which in and of itself, uh, whatever. But the moon was also transiting his MC the night that he broke into the basement apartment of Karen Sparks, his first known, you know, attempted murder. Now, that could very easily be a coincidence. I'm not looking to make too much out of that, um, but it is interesting. And his murders, you know, after that did follow, it's like a cyclical kind of monthly pattern. It's like a new murder reported like every month. Now, I do find the Uranus-North node conjunction on his ascendant a lot more interesting. It usually correlates with a radical transformation of the personality or, you know, a big shift in the way somebody presents themselves in the world. And it does seem around that time that Bundy did start to adopt a more socially functional persona. Um, and that Mars transiting Neptune, you know, maybe wanting to physically act out a fantasy, maybe a violent one regarding, I don't know, death and sexuality, Neptune transiting Jupiter and the ruler of the, the fifth and the eighth. I certainly wouldn't write it off. Like the North Node involved in that Uranus conjunction with his ascendant, I would think some erratic behavior might be involved, perhaps some overwhelming impulses. Now, I am very far away from claiming that I've cracked the case in any way, but I, I do think there's an astrological case to be made for it uh, being plausible that he you know, was responsible for the disappearance of Carol Ann Boone. Again, I would have liked to see that whole fourth house being activated by perfection. It is being activated, but you know, the planets in that chart are responsible for ruling about half of his houses. So it is going to be activated that way a lot. I mean, which also makes sense. It's not going to be probably one singular event that really signals the defining moment of Ted Bundy's evolution, or really anyone's for that matter. Okay. So, you know, as much as I found it really interesting going over Bundy's whole life uh, by perfection, I've probably already really tested the limits of most people's attention spans by this point. So let's bring our focus back to that uh, 1974, 1975, that peak activity period. In 1974, towards the end of November, he would have turned 28 and that would have began his fifth house uh, perfection. During that time, he's putting a little more effort into maintaining appearances. All the murdering he got up to in Washington had gotten way too much attention, so he's really focusing his activities in Colorado and Utah, but he's also you know, getting more and more preoccupied with murder, too. It's getting harder to keep the two worlds separate. And finally, on August 16th, 1975, he is arrested while out on the prowl, if you will, driving without his headlights on. He gets pulled over and he has his murder kit in the back. And from this point on, they don't quite have enough to charge him yet, but they're pretty sure that Ted Bundy is their guy. The day before Bundy is arrested, Jupiter, the Lord of the Year, ruling his fifth house, stations retrograde. And suddenly, Jupiter isn't helping him uh, keep shit a secret anymore. He's under 24-hour surveillance. I mean, up to that point, he had been kind of living the fifth house Sag dream a little bit, taking his killing spree on the road, marsing up all the moons that he wanted to. But now the party is suddenly over. He's getting increasingly paranoid and agitated because he, he can't kill anyone. Then on September 17th, 1975... Saturn makes its first ingress 
into Leo, kicking off Bundy's Saturn return. And within a month, he is formally charged with aggravated kidnapping and assault. He is released on bond, paid for by his mother. And then by the time his first trial begins, February 1976, he is in a sixth house perfection year. And, you know, this house is ruled by Saturn. So unlike the fifth house, the sixth house is not a house of good times. It's a house of difficult times, usually hard work, sometimes illness, but also sometimes uh, slavery or imprisonment. If you think of the fifth house as having a lot of personal freedom, the sixth house is having not very much (laughs) of that. You do tend to see the eighth house more as uh, punishment, uh, maybe the twelfth house as imprisonment. You know, the ruling planet, Saturn, had gone retrograde back into Bundy's 12th house. Furthermore, his 12th house is actually being activated, given that if you count six houses from the 12th, you get the ruling planet, the moon. The 11th house is being activated in the same way. If you count six signs from the 11th, you get the ruling planet, Mercury. It's not immediately obvious how that really fits. You usually think the 11th house is, is a good house. You think friends, but fans show up in the 11th house. Bundy did have a lot of fans during this time, not nearly as many as he would have in the you know much more public trials that would follow. But with that 11th house activation, you're also activating Uranus, which is you know in his 11th house opposing his moon, the ruler of the 12th. And he really started cooking up schemes to break out of prison during this period because February 1976, he is found guilty and sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison. And with Bundy now safely locked away, the state of Colorado was able to put its case together for several murders that he committed there. And that takes us to January of 1977, when he is transferred to Aspen, and the much more public murder trials begin. Now, this is a seventh house perfection, and the uh, topic of relationships certainly wasn't irrelevant. His uh, primary romantic relationship, Elizabeth Clover, she was certainly very confused about his guilt. And given that the ruling planet Saturn is in the first and Saturn being very confused about itself in the sign of Leo and guilt being a (laughs) significator, uh, one of Saturn's uh, significations, um, you get a pretty literal manifestation of that. But we are also getting a 10th house activation because if you perfect seven houses from the 10th, you get the ruling planet Venus in the 4th. And while uh, the Bundy trials aren't quite being broadcast on a nationwide level yet, this is really the beginning of the legend of Ted Bundy. Because in June, he manages to escape from the courthouse by jumping out of the, the courthouse library window. And he tries to cross the mountains, basically gets lost, He's exhausted and starving and forced to return to town, and he is recaptured just like five or six days later. But this escape attempt coincides with a Neptune conjunction on his natal Mars, directly opposed by Jupiter in Gemini. And we keep getting this Mars-Neptune stuff happening for Bundy at these kind of critical times in his life, or at least, you know, major points in the, the highlight reel of his life. In this case, it seems kind of with uh, some help from Jupiter and Neptune, he's able to make a kind of brief vanishing act. But, you know, Saturn 
is, you know, just separating from its exact return in this chart. It's, you know, still right there in his first house. I don't think anyone gets off that easy during a Saturn return. And, <clears throat> you know, uh, Neptune's pretty good at making things disappear or seemingly turn to vapor, but not so great at things like navigation. In fact, probably really good at getting you lost in the mountains. Now, despite this episode, Bundy actually stood a decent chance of winning the case at this point. A lot of evidence was being dismissed. Most of the evidence was pretty circumstantial anyway, and he was being advised by lawyers and friends to just stay put and not make himself look any more guilty than he already did. Nonetheless, Bundy was already plotting a second escape attempt um, with the help of the woman he would eventually marry while on trial in Florida, Carol Ann Boone. On December 23rd, 1977, he successfully gets the location of the trial uh, switched over to Colorado Springs. Carol Ann Boone had smuggled in plans for the jail in Colorado Springs, which he was able to put to use for a successful escape, at least temporarily. But it ends up being just one of the many ways that Bundy digs his own grave now, this is a 8th house perfection year for him, and we get the 8th the house in Pisces being activated and uh, the 6th house being activated as well because it's in Capricorn and Saturn is 8 signs away. If you perfect from the sect light, which is an approach we haven't even used yet, you do get a 12th house activation, which is a house ruled by the sect light, making that activation all the more the real deal. And we see Ted Bundy engaging in a textbook 12th house activity, the notorious self-undoing swish. And feel free to uh, jump out of your seats and give a little cheer. Unless, of course, you're driving, because that wouldn't be safe. Now, at this point in particular, it becomes a pretty appropriate to question how objectively positive this is uh, from the perspective of Ted Bundy. Certainly in the short term, you know, I'm sure he really enjoyed, it was about 50 days of freedom that, you know, at least in the short term, again, seems very, very fortunate. He was able to tunnel his way out through the ceiling and uh, more or less hitchhike his way to Michigan and from there take a train down to Florida, where he was quite successful in sustaining himself uh, by stealing credit cards and more or less whatever he needed. He did also have the opportunity to engage in what we all know as Bundy's favorite activity. The crimes that he committed during this time, I would argue, would rank as easily among the most despicable and just reprehensible, brutal attacks on women amongst uh, a laundry list of just horrific crimes against women. On January 15th, the infamous Chi Omega sorority house murders take place where within 15 minutes, Bundy assaults four women, murdering two of them, grievously and permanently injuring the other two before slipping away into the night. And then three weeks later, on February 8th, he attempted to convince a 14-year-old girl who happened to be the daughter of a detective to get in uh, his stolen van with him. She is, you know, was fortunately saved by the appearance of her brother, which scared Bundy away. But later that afternoon, 
Bundy made his way to a junior high school about 60 miles away where a a 14-year-old girl, Leslie Palmer, is presumably abducted by Bundy and her body is found several weeks later. Fortunately, at this point, the police are closing in on Ted. He uh, attempts to make a run for it and is caught near the Alabama state line. Now, on the day of his escape, uh, December 28th, 1977, Saturn is at about 15 minutes, zero degrees in 15 minutes uh, retrograde in Virgo. It's almost like Ted was able to slip away while Saturn was looking the other way. And while I'll give Saturn in Bundy's first house, you know, the lion's share of credit for providing the ingredients in the creation of, you know, the monster that Ted Bundy was, Saturn's not really Bundy's friend either, you know? Saturn still plays the role of the bearer of ill fortune in Bundy's life as well as everyone else's. And, you know, I mean, this is not letting Bundy off the hook by any stretch, but I'm sure if given the choice, Bundy, you know, wouldn't have chosen this life for himself or rather, you know, chosen the experiences which led to the uh, formulation of such a wicked and villainous concoction of human impulses and character. I won't dive too deep down the philosophical rabbit hole <laughs> that that, uh, that leads to, but I don't think any of this was uh, ultimately good for him, <laughs> you know? But again, if we you know, get on that, if I get on that carousel, I'm never going to get off. But, you know, in regards to Bundy's transits, we have, uh, like I mentioned before, Saturn uh, being activated by the sixth house activation So Saturn is still generally delivering on its Saturn return agenda for Bundy, but also its sixth house agenda, if you will. And it's temporarily out of action, in a sense, uh, not currently in the first house as of January 28th, the day of Bundy's escape. And Jupiter is also activated by it being an eighth house perfection year. It's uh, Pisces, the sign is activated, and Jupiter has the job of delivering on uh, the eighth house agenda for Bundy's life again, if you will. And when you consider that Jupiter is in its exaltation at the moment of Bundy's escape on the cusp of retrograding out of the sign of Cancer out of Bundy's 12th house, as I understand a planet like Jupiter, its inclination is to deliver, you know, positive things according to its ability, given whatever condition it happens to be in, which, you know, sometimes results in uh, misguided attempts uh, that are, are not good either for the native of the chart or other people. But in this specific context, I can't help but wonder who Jupiter is being a benefic for. In this specific context is, you know, Jupiter exalted in his 12th house, doing the world a favor, (laughs) being a benefic for for the world and keeping Bundy in prison. And then as he slips back uh, into Gemini, he's sort of briefly unable to do his you know, theoretical job there. And then there is Mars, which is, you know, maybe not being specifically activated by perfection, but given that the moon is and Mars being conjunct his moon natally and then conjunct 
Mars transiting, you know, in the sky over his ascendant, it had, uh, you know, Mars had just stationed retrograde a couple weeks before, uh, right around his ascendant. Meanwhile, Neptune is conjunct his natal moon, which as you may recall, Neptune was conjunct his natal Mars during his last escape. And, you know, the moon and Mars being eclipsed in the fifth house natally for him in Sagittarius, I can, you know, really see how there's kind of a story there, or at least given how his life, you know, had unfolded up to this point of these eclipsed planets kind of delivering on a sort of uh, slipping away in secret in a way that is hidden in an effort to, you know, gain freedom. Uranus is also, you know, transiting uh, his IC, uh, making its way over to Venus, but also opposing his MC. And we have a moment where he's, you know, literally making a, a break for freedom by means of a secret plan that will become part of his reputation and serve as, you know, one of several uh, sort of claims to fame he has. I mean, he's been dead for over 30 years, and here we are talking about him right now. And then if we fast forward a little bit to January 15th, the day of the Chi Omega sorority house murders, Saturn is back in his first house. Jupiter is fully backed out in, into his 11th house, substantially diminished from its exaltation to its detriment. So, you know, just to speak on it in very broad terms, whatever its agenda is at this time in regards to Bundy, it's very much diminished in its capacity to do that job. You know, I'm just noticing right now that uh, the North Node is transiting uh, Neptune. Well, really over the last several years transiting his South Node, but is, you know, pretty much exactly on his moon. And you know what? I don't, I don't know what that means. And, you know, I'd be very interested to hear if anybody has any ideas on that. But, you know, it's probably irrelevant. There's already so much going on that very accurately describes the events that are unfolding. But uh, Mars, you know, it's retrograding and you can see it's making good speed um, backwards. And often uh, when you initiate an activity that is closely correlated with a planet that is stationing retrograde or, or in a place in the sky where it's going to move backwards and have to come back to, that generally indicates that whatever you initiated uh, is going to be you know, reversed in some way, or at the very least, you're going to have to go back and do it over again. So as Mars makes its way back towards Cancer, towards Bundy's 12th house, a sign where Mars also happens to be in its fall, while this is happening, Bundy is doing shit that is going to put him exactly in the same conditions that Mars is going to be in. That is in the 12th house in prison and fallen completely down and out and out of luck. And then by February 8th, the day Bundy takes a shot and fails to abduct a local detective, as well as the day that Kimberly Letch goes missing, Mars is solidly in cancer at 25 degrees, still retrograde. Neptune has uh, very recently separated from the conjunction with the moon. So, you know, maybe the uh, sort of spell, vanishing spell that Neptune performed is, is wearing off. He's uh, kind of rematerializing as the police close in on him. And then February 15th, he is recaptured after a scuffle with two police officers who he managed to get away from momentarily after kicking one of their guns away in the scuffle but then quickly gave up after one of them fired a, a warning shot at him. And a, a couple interesting things happen right at this time, or perhaps more interestingly, don't happen. See, given that this is an eighth house year for Bundy, and, you know, Bundy has a night chart, and Venus is the more powerful benefic planet 
generally speaking. So you might think that Venus, having just entered Pisces and his eighth house, might maybe help him, you know, avoid punishment just like a little bit. Perhaps this is just a little bit of speculation on my part. But if we look at what Venus is doing, we see that Venus has just left Aquarius, a Saturn-ruled sign. Saturn has not been very nice to Venus in Bundy's chart. And just at this moment, or you know, within the last day, Venus has just separated from an opposition with Saturn in Leo and sort of escaped over the border into Pisces, where Venus is exalted. Venus is powerful and completely unconfigured to Saturn. And in Bundy's eighth house, this is also uh, a Jupiter-ruled sign, given, um, you know, maybe some other speculations I've made about what Jupiter's job this year is. I might think that a exalted Venus in that condition, under those circumstances and in that moment, might use her power to deliver just a little bit of eighth house justice to the native in question of this particular birth chart a bit of divine justice that will make the world a, a bit of a safer place for Venuses everywhere. It also bears noting that uh, Jupiter, though still in Gemini, stations direct uh, just three days after that. And really, for all intents and purposes, the sort of week preceding a station direct tends to be a um, auspicious time for a planet. Astrologically speaking, it's gaining power it's a boxer who's, you know, gone like 10 rounds and the coach is massaging his shoulders, giving him a pep talk, and he is finding his second wind and ready to, you know, get back in the ring and start busting, busting some jaws, you know, throwing some elbows. Now, <clears throat> if we zoom out again and maybe revisit the question that I began this segment with of whether, you know, this was an overall um, positive time for Bundy Speaking in terms of the overall outcome, like was this the astrological equivalent of baby's day out for Bundy? We may never know the actual answer to that. I suppose it becomes a question of how likely it was for Bundy to maybe have been found not guilty back in Colorado. The court that he had transferred to in Colorado Springs was notably more hostile towards murder suspects, but, you know, the evidence was still not not that great. It wasn't, you know, it was kind of flimsy. But now he is in Florida, and Florida has a an electric chair that just loves having the butts of prisoners uh, on it. Florida is, you know, ranked in the top five in terms of, you know, total number of executed death row inmates on record. So while we'll never know if Bundy would have been executed if he had stayed put in Colorado, it's fair to say that he didn't do anything to help his chances by uh, relocating himself to the uh, Florida justice system. Now, I could certainly keep going. Bundy did live another 10 or 11 years after this, but I will take this moment to wrap it up. And, you know, I want to say thank you to anybody that uh, made it all the way to the end. If, you know, you enjoyed this and you would like to see more, leave a review or subscribe and comment and all that as it relates to the uh, platform uh, with which you are consuming this media. <laughs> and if you would like a reading with me while I am not at the time of this recording available for live consultations just yet, though I plan to be very soon, 
you can purchase a recorded reading from me on my Etsy store, which I will include a link for. Um, otherwise, you can you know go to Etsy.com and search Fluorescent Black. That would be the shop name. Or you can uh, check out my website. There is a link there at KylePierceAstrology.com. I believe that will cover it. Thank you, everybody, for joining me, and I will see you next time.